This is Speaking of Faith's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Mercedes Doretti. She's a forensic anthropologist and a senior researcher of the Argentine Forensic Anthropology Team. I spoke with her on February 26, 2009, from the studios of American Public Media in St. Paul, Minnesota. She was at a private recording studio in New York City. This interview was included in our program, Laying the Dead to Rest, meeting forensic anthropologist Mercedes Doretti. Download the MP3 of that produced show at speakingoffaith.org. Thank you for inviting me. <laughs> and, you know, what I want to talk about, if you've, if you've heard the program or you're familiar with the program, um, we take a broad view of, of religion, faith, spirituality, um, and just these core questions of what it means to be human um, with all the breadth um, with which they exist in human life. And so I'm interested in the work you do and also what I, you know, what I, what I would call the human landscape of that work and, uh, you know, what you learn about humanity uh, through, through this work. But um, are, are we ready? Are, are we ready on your side? Okay. Um, I, I'd like to start where I start all my interviews, just hearing a little bit about um, the if there is a religious or spiritual background to your upbringing, to your childhood. I was raised as a Catholic, but I uh, but I don't practice since a long time ago, and I don't. I'm not a believer. I'm afraid. Yeah. Okay. You don't have yeah. to apologize. <clears throat> so, and you came into adulthood. Um, in the years of what is called Argentina's Dirty War, 1976 to 1983, 10,000 people disappeared. Um, I've read that you were engaged as a student demonstrator. Your mother was a journalist. I mean, I wonder, when I read that, how did those experiences form your moral or ethical sensibility, you know, your sense of humanity? Um you mean the uh, the dictatorship, or yeah, and, and yes, and your—I I don't know—I think you would call it your moral outrage at what was happening in your country, and even your mother's sensibility as a journalist. Right. Yeah. Well, um, I, I think it uh, since you know, in in my house there was uh, because of my mother. I think there was always uh, uh, a lot of talking about uh, justice and poverty and. Uh, your social responsibility in terms of um, having uh, been born in a, in a household that did not have that kind of problems. Mm. Um, and to be always sensitive uh, to that, to be aware of you know the suffering of others and so on. And then when the dictatorship came, um, it was... It was weird because at, at the beginning, um, I, I was on I was sixteen or something like mm-hmm. that when the coup came. Um, my mom wasn't necessarily against it. I, I think mostly because of this long history that we had on the last, at the time, fifty years of Argentina, where each democratic government will be, you know, um, will end it with a military coup, and we up until this last military government. The other military governments were uh, also, of course, very bad, but not mm. um, uh, with the kind of uh, human rights, the scale of the human rights violations that we would see on this new military government. So uh, she, has, as many other people, thought, well, you know, they will come just for a little while. Uh, they will put some order and then we'll go back to democracy again. Mm. Um, 
So at the beginning, we were having these big fights, but it was also through the information after that she was receiving, already during the, the military government, uh, of people that were being um, kidnapped by security forces, mm-hmm. tortured, taken to illegal detention centers, and so on and so forth, that I started also having uh, a conscious of what, what was going on. Um, did you, did so, you have a scale, or did people have a scale of the a sense of the scale of the disappearances while it was happening, uh, or was it only later? Uh, I think it was later. Mm-hmm. Um, we, I, in a way, because of the work of my mother as a journalist, um, uh, started learning about it one year more or less after the coup, between one and two years after the coup, what was going on. But we never thought that the scale of it was as big as it was afterwards mm-hmm. uncovered. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And did you begin to study anthropology also in those years? You were already a student, weren't you? Yeah, I um, graduated from high school and then I studied um, anthropology. And I did all my, uh, almost all my um, university um, studies during the military government. And yeah. what, what drew you to that field? I wanted to start actually, wanted to study um, biology, but I wanted to have more of a social side, (laughs) more of a human side added to that. So I thought I will, um, after talking with several people, that I would go into anthropology and then probably do physical anthropology, uh, work on evolution or or on um, primate behavior, something of that sort. And then when I got into the university, I actually decided to specialize in social anthropology, even though I received um, background from all the different um, subdisciplines of anthropology, including biological anthropology. Mm-hmm. And then I ended up working on forensics. So I guess I mixed <laughs> the two <laughs> things I wanted, in a way, in my, in my actual work. I'm just curious about um, being in college in those years when that was happening in your society. I mean, I think those are years, not for everyone, but for many people, where you're already poised to to criticize what's happening in the world around you and to think that you could do it better. Um, I mean, how how were you responding just on a human level to to this violence that was taking place and this injustice that was taking place? There was, frankly, very little uh, one could do or, mm-hmm. or very little most people, including myself, uh, did during those years. Uh, the people that were actually going out and denouncing this were mostly the human rights organizations. Um, I was not part of any of them. Um, that were mostly at that time formed by relatives of disappeared people and also by lawyers uh, that were representing them um, and uh, and other activists. Uh, but it was extremely dangerous. In mm-hmm. fact, uh, several of them disappeared. Um, and, 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 and journalists as well. I mean, I think my, my mom in that respect also... Uh, was saying a lot of things on the radio, and because of that, you know, she you and, fearful? and her family received death threats during all the mm. dictatorship. So it was it was a time in which you you kept a lot of your anger inside. Um, uh, we would talk, you know, among friends, but even that you would do in a, in a careful way. Mm-hmm. Um, it was also um, very frustrated on an intellectual level because there were very few things we could read. Uh, mm. And studying anthropology on itself was something not among the careers that were well seen. Uh, uh, 
by the government. And so, uh, you know, sociology was closed, uh, anthropology was closed for a year, then they reopened, but with a very limited um, uh, number of students. Uh, we couldn't read basic uh, books like Levi-Strauss or mm. Freud because it was considered subversive. I mean, yeah. of course, that was very mild uh, compared with other things that were going on, but it was... It was uh, it was a very sad time in many in many different ways, um, where you would not see any hope. Right. I guess when you when you're describing that, then uh, it's clear to me that um, Clyde Snow was a really important person in your life. It kind of makes me imagine that when he came onto the scene, I guess he was invited there by one of these organizations, Grandmothers of the Plaza de Mayo. Um, Human rights, uh, an organization. Uh, this is, you know, which is heartbreaking. Which was searching for children who had disappeared with their parents, um, and it, it seems maybe did he did he he offered a way to become involved? I guess in right. the aftermath. Already, of that. It was already when democracy was in the country. Right, right. It was not before that. Uh-huh. Yeah, it was on the at the beginning of democracy in the summer of nineteen eighty eighty four, um, and. Um, he was and he is an extremely important figure in my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, but at that time, I have to say, um, it was not like a natural um, uh, thing in the sense that it's not that we said or I said, oh, okay, yeah, great, we can work on this now and um, you know, do something on this area. It was We were quite reluctant, actually, at the beginning to start working on this area. Mm. Um, because of many different reasons, partly because um, we have no idea about how we were going to react. Um, I didn't know. Uh, mm-hmm. So you hadn't actually thing. done forensic anthropology. No, before. we haven't done any forensic work up mm-hmm. until that moment. So there was a fear of, you know, how would you react to working on that field, getting into a cemetery, working on a morgue. Mm-hmm. Then there was also, um, you know, that it's very different than working on an archaeological site of ten thousand years ago or something like that. Mm-hmm. Then we were also scared if, if there was going to be another coup because we thought, well, if we survive the previous one, uh, suddenly if there is another coup, we will have to leave. Hmm. You know, so so we were also thinking this decision that we take now implies uh, many other things eventually. Right, right. Uh, so we, the, the the group of students that initially started with him decided to do it um, because, it, you know, we couldn't say no, basically, because we thought if we were, you know, consistent with what we believed, we have to, and, and someone was asking us directly to apply our studies into uh, an activity that we believed on because we were going to demonstrations and, you know, doing different activities with the human rights organizations um, at that time. Um that we couldn't say no, but it's not that we jumped into the opportunity. Okay. <laughs> it was much later that. <laughs> you know, I'm I'm so intrigued when I read about um, him that he had worked on finding the remains of Joseph Mengele in Brazil, the Nazi doctor. That he had reinvestigated the remains of Custer and his men at Little Bighorn, and that he was is the world's expert in a field that I'd never heard of, osteobiography. Um, the art and science of reading a life story from a person's bones. Um, is it true that that no two bones, like no two snowflakes, <laughs> are exactly alike? Is that right? Well, yeah, pretty much. Uh, you could you could really see 
uh, you know, when you're looking at a pair of femurs or a pair of tibias uh, coming from the same person, you could see, you know, a lot of similarities that immediately when you see um, a femur or a tibia from someone else, you, you could very well, you know, see the difference. And then you see the difference between the right and the left, obviously. Yeah, hmm. pretty much, yeah. Well, so um, how did you react when you first first started doing that? And I mean, how did you first start? What what was the first project that you, that you took up with, with him, with Clyde Snow? Well, um, he, um, it was an individual exhumation, an exhumation of, a, of a, um, an individual grave in, the, in a cemetery in the outskirts of Buenos Aires. Uh, Clyde was really amazing in the sense that, um, you know, we were just a group of students, very young, <laughs> Full of questions, feared and and rebellion too. But uh, and and he was actually leading us, you know, step by step. Okay, we're gonna do this, then we do that. Don't worry, I'm here and all that. No, um, and uh, my first reaction, I was even I was surprised uh, myself about it because it was when we start digging and we start encountering um, the uh, remains. I I was fine. I was just. Um, very worried about all the details, about, you know, um, looking at the bones, looking at the soil, you know, sifting the soil, taking photos, this and that. And I realized I could do it. Um, Mm. That somehow, you know, at that moment I had um, some defense mechanism or however you want to call it, that uh, I was very concentrated on what I was doing and I was not um, thinking a lot of other things that could have... um, stop me from emotionally from doing that. Right. You know, I was reading an article that was in the New York Times in 1987 about you and your colleagues. They called mm-hmm. you four unlikely forensic sleuths. <laughs> um, <laughs> and there was this chilling sentence. They said, as for exhumations elsewhere in Argentina have revealed, the anonymous dead were mostly young people slain by a single gunshot wound to the head. So, I mean, were you were you working with the bodies of with people close to your age. Yeah, that was the other thing. I mean, that it was not that we were going to, you know, dig up bodies of people that were too far away from us, not only in time, but also in age. I mean, these yeah. were people that were the same age as we were when we were exhuming them. Um, and then the trauma on the skull, I mean, I have no idea about, you know, guns or gunshot wounds or anything before. And seeing a skull that is... Um, that basically exploded uh, due to the uh, impact of a bullet. It's uh, it's 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 very disturbing. Um, but I think um, what what we also learned um, was how you can how your work has a lot to do with reparation mm-hmm. uh, from the most physical sense of putting together those pieces of skulls back you know, glue them, basically, so that you can understand the entrance and the exit and uh, um, and how that person died, um, to to everything that comes after that with the families of the victims. Um, and I think often people, when they think about our work, they don't necessarily, they, they stay more on the, on the gruesome side of it, which of course exists, mm-hmm. uh, but sometimes they don't see all the rewarding part and the reparation part that it means to be able to do this kind of work. I've been um, really in interested of. when I when I read about the I mean you're now in in 40 countries you've done many work I guess your organization has 
over 40 people, but it sounds like when you go in to a new project, when you accept an invitation, you don't start with bones. You start with, you don't start with the dead. You start with the living. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, we, uh, this is something that by now it's a methodology that we have, but it, but it, it started mostly as something that we saw on the field as necessary. Um, we, we realized that it's, uh, you know, a, a good relationship and con- and and uh, uh, and the trust of the of the families of the victims with the forensic team is as important as the science that you are applying. Uh, if people don't trust you, if they don't believe on what you're doing, they're not going to believe on your results, hmm. and so or they will they will doubt about them, and they won't be able to, in in, in a way. Um, Heal and close uh, that uh, that story. Uh, we, uh, particularly in human rights cases, and this is something we always try to transmit to other forensic people that have not worked on this field. It is very important to to build up a relationship with the families of the victims. I think also that they have the right of this. I mean, I I think that um, forensic people should and should always take into account that they are serving um, other people. Uh, and that their investigation should be transparent and open. But on human rights cases, this is particularly important because the families of victims have, for the most part, been denied the right to know, mm-hmm. the right to know what happened with their loved ones, where are they, what happened to them, and, and often they've been told, you're lying or your loved ones are lying. They're not, it didn't disappear. They are somewhere else. They're, they, they're traveling around. They are with their comrades or things of that sort. So there's a lot of uh, mistrust from the side of the families of victims towards forensic people that in our countries mostly work under the judiciary or the government or the police. So the first thing we do is meet with the families and with the human rights organizations. We always work also at the request of someone. We don't parachute into a situation unless we're invited. Um, And hear them, hear what they have to say, what are their concerns, what is the problem, what are the things, the questions they want us to try to answer, try to see if we can do something or not, try to be as clear and honest as possible about the expectations they can have about what we're going to start doing, and give them often a workshop on what is forensic sciences in in this kind of investigations, what are the kind of things that we're going to be doing, step by step, so that they understand um, what we're going to do and they can ask us questions or they can ask us if, for example, often um, people with different religions may like us to handle the bones in different ways. For example, if we're in a Muslim country, you know, the burial ceremony is very different than on a Catholic one. And uh, there's a number of things that are not a problem at all for us to do, but that that represent something important for families of victims uh, in terms of how we handle the remains. Uh, I mean, and things of that sort that we think, you know, are important. You know, as as I was thinking about um, this notion of your work as as, um, a crucial part of reparation, as as healing, um, it it did occur to me this, this very simple need that human beings have to be taken seriously and to be believed. And the stories you tell are of people who haven't been taken seriously or believed about these absolutely devastating events of the loss of their loved ones. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I think that sometimes it's not that they're not taken seriously, it's just that they're hiding, you know, their mm. responsibility. But uh, but but it's also sometimes the same people saying, well, why are you, are you giving them talks on forensics? Right. You know, right, these are not right. forensic people. They're not going to be able to understand. And of course people understand. I mean, you, you know, you do things at different levels. But, uh, you know... Um, People in general understand much more than 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 one would think, and and there there are ways in which you can explain a genetic test. There are ways in which you can explain how an old fracture, um, what does an old fracture a fracture does on a bone, and how it heals, and why we're seeing that old fracture now in this particular bone, and uh, and I think um, as in any case, I mean when 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 a, a daughter or a son or or you know a very close relative of yours died. Uh, in normal circumstances, you will ask the doctor involved to explain right, you as right. much as you can about what happened. Mm-hmm. The same thing is in these cases, but with the um, extra with that uh, these people have been denied knowing this for years, sometimes for decades. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, it, it is, a, a, I think, a whole... Um, but we very strongly uh, think at the team to, uh, to to maintain a very strong effort on that direction to support the right of the families to know the truth um, and to have a very direct contact with them. I mean, the things you're explaining to them are also in, in some ways pretty gruesome, right? I mean, that they should have to understand certain kinds of fractures or, or bullet wounds. And, and I was watching um, a documentary, it's part of the documentary that you helped make, where... A man, and I'm just assuming that this is maybe the kind of thing that might happen routinely, he's walking you through a site, and he's describing in uh, pretty graphic detail, but in a very matter-of-fact way, how this entire family was killed, the father, the mother, the children. Um, and and what I, you know, I was struck by, by the matter-of-factness of the questions, you know, who, or in some of this, who dug the hole? Was this hole already here? Um, but, but I wondered if... Do you experience that mm, tracing that kind of excruciating detail of what happened is also the beginning of, um, I don't know, of a kind of healing or repair that wasn't possible uh, when it was just this unsolved mystery? Yes, I think it's partly what you were saying before, um, that when people feel that you're taking them seriously, that you're, you know... I'm asking in every detail that uh, that you're listening to what they're saying, that you're answering to their questions about what you know, what you don't know, and all that. I think, yeah, that is where um, part of the healing process uh, begins. I have to say, on the other hand, that I think that some of the things that happen sometimes, um, I think uh, in the best scenario, you... You live better with them. I, I'm not. <laughs> what do you mean? Well, I just think if you if you get justice or if you get a, a full investigation, if you recover the remains. But what I mean is that um, I, I don't. I think sometimes there's an over uh, use of the term healing in the sense that oh, okay, people found the remains. There is a trial. Right. Then uh, healing is achieved. Um, unfortunately, sometimes the things that happen are so devastating that. Um, I think these these steps are very very important, but that um, you probably never fully heal from this mm-hmm. uh, event. Um, well, I'm also struck in your in your writing by how you emphasize the 
the time that this takes, I mean, even the time you want to give the investigation itself, and that that's quite hard for people when what they really want is to have answers and get through it. You know, it made me think of um, conversations I, I had with people who were involved in South Africa's process of truth and reconciliation and mm-hmm. and them saying that um, they could they could get truth right away. But that one of the things they realized in that process is that reconciliation was going to be a matter of years and generations. Well, see, that's the other word I think is often yeah. <laughs> used too often too quickly. Mm-hmm. I mean, first of all, most of the people who, who perpetrated the crimes are not asking for forgiveness. Mm-hmm. The South Africa example is an exception within, uh, and yet, you know, it only implies some people that were actually looking for amnesty. So it's not, you know, you, you could, I don't know, you could... Uh, uh, I don't know. Uh, I don't want to p- put a question mark on any of them, but I mean, it's it's they were uh, they were getting out, out of of they were getting something, their freedom basically mm-hmm. out of uh, confessing a crime and apologizing for it. But in general, uh, in most of the cases, uh, there is no apologies to any to any of the victims or their families. Mm-hmm. So who are you going to reconcile with? Right. Who's asking you for forgiveness? Mm-hmm. So I think that uh, maybe future generations may understand history better. Uh, and eventually, through justice and through truth, you uh, may be able to kind of reconcile yourself with what happened. Right. But, but, it's but the reconciliation, kind of reconciliation happens in Reconciling you. with the perpetrators. Well, tell me, tell me this. Um, do you still have family in Argentina? I mean... Yeah, all, almost all my family is there. How do you experience um, how that has been reconciled? That that period, that horror, period of horror and disappearances. Um, and do you do, do you think that the work you did, um, what what part has that played in it? You mean in the country for the country? Yeah, or just for people you know. I mean, do you have some perspective on that because this number of years has passed and because you were involved? In, a, in this piece of it? Well, for example, in, in that country, there's, there's been some... Um, well, there's, there's been several things. There's been a, a major trial that I think was extremely important at the beginning of, of the democracy after the dictatorship of the junta members um, that lasted for a number of, for a couple of years. Uh, I think that was very, very important because it left no doubt uh, about what happened after, like, two years of having every newspaper dedicating six to ten pages about testimonies of victims. Um, and because it was also um, done from the, from the top down, in other words, it was taken as a state terrorism, which I think it's what it was. It was not the action of a single lieutenant that got a little crazy here or there, but it was actually um, a policy directed from the state with more than 300 legal detention centers all over the country, and, and all the security forces is involved, which, uh, you know, often t- you, in the few cases of accountability, um, uh, you often don't have the main um, people in charge right. actually on trial. You have the lower ranks. <laughs> and, and so in that respect, I think that, that trial was very important. Uh, uh, but then we have several impunity laws that precluded the trials to go on. And, and almost... All investigations uh, stopped. We continue with the investigations and, and with the... Your forensic of, investigations? Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, always through the legal, you know, with the judiciary, but n- there was no prosecution involved. And now, you know, uh, 
after like 20 years um, since the last trial, we have more than a thousand ongoing prosecutions um, all over the country because impunity laws have been um, nullified and some of the old trials started again and new trials started again. Mm. So, um, um, justice is a many layered <laughs> thing, I guess. Exactly, uh-huh. yeah. Uh, we went through trials, through impunity laws, through amnesties, uh, and then trials again. Uh, so, um, I, I, I really think that uh, uh, justice is very important. That um, on these many truth, la- the, levels, you mean? On, the, on many levels, mm-hmm. yeah. But but I also think, I mean, justice through the judiciary, through courts, is very, very important. Um, what about this process, though, of, of individuals reconciling these losses within themselves? Or And I suppose that if one if it what happens with one person, perhaps it affects families and communities. I mean, in Argentina or elsewhere, have you seen, um, have you, have you, have you f- believed that this work that you were engaged in with people of finding and identifying and at least um, putting the bones to rest of their loved ones, that that made a difference in terms of how they came through this in the long term? Yes. Yes, frankly, that, that's, that's one of the main reasons why we do this work. I mean, they, you feel it's, it's uh, extremely uh, rewarding and, and heart, heartbreaking also uh, mm-hmm. how families will tell you what it, what, what, what it means for them to recover the remains of, of their loved ones or of their loved one. Um, uh, they, they always say that, that, you know, they can finally find a place where they can put flowers, that they can rest that they can now also move on to other things of their lives and to go back to their family life. Because what they always say, no matter what culture and, you know, almost every country where we go, is that their life has been paralyzed the moment their loved one disappeared. The moment they, the, the person they know, sometimes they have, that they have been executed, but they don't have the remains. So it's this pending, excruciating um, uh, thing of not knowing what happened uh, that um, paralyzed their lives and that they can, you know, that everything is directed to try to find out what happened. Mm-hmm. And so they're often their marriages, their other kids are neglect, ne- neglect, neglected in a way. Um, and their own lives are, you know, put on hold. So um, it's, a, it's a different kind of um, loss when there's a disappearance as opposed to a death. I, I think so, absolutely. Uh-huh. So much so that, that, for example, in international law, the uh, uh, the families of the disappeared people are considered victims of torture because of the um, pain that they are submitting by the uncertainty of not knowing. Uh, it is. It, uh, I'm not. You know, there's no scale to compare the pain, but uh, mm-hmm. of course, if someone had been executed or assassinated, it's, it's an enormous loss. But not knowing what happened, if the person is dead or alive, if there's something else you could do, if there's another place maybe that uh, they're holding that person mm-hmm. and that you should do something to try to, to find that person, but you can't, and it's, 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 uh, it's devastating. Um, it's, it's, uh, there's, you know, you, you, there's nothing, you can't rest, no? Mm-hmm. I, I, I suppose you just answered this it it is a question in my mind um just because i haven't experienced this and most of us haven't experienced this uh 
it's a kind of mystery. What is it about human beings that we we need to see and honor the the actual bodies, right? The remains um, of people we love. I mean, do you have an do you have an understanding of that as an anthropologist that you wouldn't have had? Um, I know it's 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 pretty amazing. I mean, when when you see that the Neanderthals were at least the, that's the you know earliest record right. that we have of you know taking care of the death, and then you read Antigone and uh, just a little piece of earth uh, will do to put the remains at rest. But that little thing has to be done. That mm-hmm. read of passage needs to be uh, accomplished. Um, it's um, it's amazing, uh, but I'm, I'm I'm part of it as well, <laughs> right? As a human being, I mean, I you know, I I, I lost my older brother. Not nothing to do with uh, with uh, uh, politics or disappearances. But I, when that happened, I I thought, well, you know, I'm so grateful that at least we can, you know, we have a wake. We bury him. You know, we know where he is. Right. Uh, you didn't take that for granted. No. Yeah. Yeah. You've said that um, of all the places you've worked, um, El Salvador was the hardest. Is that right? What was was one of the hardest, mm-hmm. yeah. B- because there were so many children. You had to uncover the bodies of so many children. Yeah. I mean, in general, because there were so many victims for family, which I wasn't used to that. I mean, like, entire families being... Um, uh, executed, and then and then because we have to um, dig up the the remains of those more than hundred children, it was mm-hmm. something we were not prepared at all to do. Mm-hmm. A point you've made in your writing is that your work, this precise kind of work you do, is in part a result of a a kind of change in the nature of warfare or social unrest, violent social unrest in our lifetime. Um, these, uh, after the 1960s, that you had revolutionary movements in different countries that take different forms, and death squads or famine used as a as a weapon or uh, scorched land policy or these, like these disappearances in Argentina. And that a, a feature of this is that absolutely innocent civilians get pulled in and are kind of the fodder for the war. Um, and it strikes me that, and I, I don't know if this is if this is fair, if this is um, right, but it, it does strike me that now in our time, just in recent years, we have new versions of this in suicide bombings, for example, that kill masses of people. Um, I wonder if... Um, are there things that you know from this work you've done these last few decades um, that give you some insight when you see this kind of thing happening, say in Iraq, um, to what that does to people and societies? And, you know, tell me if, if I'm wrong to even bring those things together in the same sentence. I'm, I'm not sure about the question. Well, um, it, I, I, just thinking about um, the way in which these... Um, these these human rights violations, these mass killings that you've worked on in places like Bosnia, El Salvador, Argentina, um, Ethiopia, um, that these were kind of new forms of of, um, of civilians being drawn in to violence. 
and it seems to me that in our time we have this other it's i mean it's not new i mean this has all happened in human history but this new specter of suicide bombings killing masses of people which is part of iraq's for example iraq's civil unrest and i wonder if you watch that and if you ha- if you if you make sense of it differently because of i mean in terms of how you think about what that's doing to a society because of what you've seen in the people you've worked with and the communities you've worked with in other places where there were kind of these inexplicably horrible mass killings of civilians. Does that make sense? Or have you thought about those things together? Maybe I'm making a stretch. No, it's just that um, um, when, whenever I see a, a bombing on a, on a market or something like that in Iraq, of mm-hmm. course, I, you know, I think about, you know, the how awful it must be to live in a society like that, that it's constantly under, you know, that you don't know if you're coming back home every day and uh, and what's happening with, and if your kids are going to come back and, and all that. Um, it, it's just that some, it, it uh, I don't know, conflict varies also. Or, I mean, the victims are the same and, and um, it doesn't matter, you know, <laughs> what kind of regime or if it's a civil war or... If, you know, but... Um, um, it, it's what, what it's. I don't know. It, I'm not sure exactly. Um, um, I get. I guess what I'm saying is, I think. Um, let's say people in the United States <clears throat> who've never lived in, in our lifetime through this kind of violence um, here, right? Uh, will watch that and not be able to imagine what that does to people to live with that kind of violence happening. I mean, the way you just described it. Yes, it's terrible to think about. Going maybe going to the market and not coming home, but it, by the same token, I think about people living in Argentina when you were in the late seventies, yeah. and imagining that people were disappearing all around you. It's kind of incomprehensible yeah. to us. Um, so I, I just wonder if you're able to make a different kind of not make sense of it, but have a different kind of analysis of what in fact it's doing to people and the damage that is now going to be in a society like that that will have to be worked on for many right. generations. Yeah, well, um, you know, I wouldn't like to talk about Iraq, but because I haven't, you know, I, I don't know it mm-hmm. really uh, um, that well. But um, other than the news, some of the newspapers and so on. But yeah. um, uh, but certainly, um, you know, um, it it creates all, all kind of you know stigmati- stigmatization of and mistrust between people. Uh, nobody trusts anybody. Uh, Nobody. It's hard to have any kind of future, any kind of planning. Um, you know, uh, it's not only living day by day, but like kind of hour by hour. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and and particularly when there are several groups um, um, involved um, in in killing, kidnappings, and um, uh, right. bombings, and so on. Um, it's very hard to that those communities are going to um, be able to live together afterwards. Um, that will take several generations. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 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 a way, um, you know, in Argentina, it was a, at least at the beginning, it was even though it was a kind of a simplified version of the story, it was the civilians and the military. So, so um, right, which is different. It's it's different than mm-hmm. having. The civilian population divided into different groups, mm-hmm. um, attacking each other. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, mm-hmm. so uh, yeah. Here's, here, I mean, you've lived in the United States for a number of years now, haven't you? 
You've, mm-hmm. Since the 90s sometime. 17 years, yeah. So, you know, I think a lot about... Um, and when I'm thinking about your work, I'm also thinking about um, the discussion we're having in this country about torture, and I'm thinking about mm-hmm. policies of the United States um, in different countries yeah. over the year. I mean, even... Um, you did that work in El Salvador, and I, I think that um, while that wasn't the American, an, um, the result of American policy or American troops, um, the U.S. government was denying some of those massacres because they had supported that government, right? So there's there are different kinds of complicity in this. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But I was frankly outraged during the Bush administration where I was reading on the New York Times, on the newspapers, that the president of the United States was announcing the use of torture as nothing. And the use of illegal, what in Argentina will be considered illegal detention centers, clandestine detention centers mm-hmm. uh, used by the CIA, that they were not, you know, the prisoners will be taken to undisclosed locations uh, where, you know, enhanced um, Interrogation techniques, as the word, as 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 they were called, right. that were basically torture, were, were going to be used, and that these people have no rights at all. I I thought, well, this is what the militaries were doing in my country. Right. How could this be happening here? Hmm. How could this be announced by the president of the United States in the press? It's not a hiding thing. It's not a, you know, something that is, you know. Uh, that we need years to discover it. It is announced and declared, mm-hmm. and it happened. Because you really have spent your life these last decades unearthing the uh, the f- tortured bodies, right, in part. Yes, but, I mean, it's like uh, I was, you know, and even today, I mean, the programs of extraordinary rendition of, yeah. Yeah. you know, uh, that are still under discussion uh, at the Obama administration, which I, you know, I'm thrilled to have Obama as a president, but uh, but at the same time, uh, um, I'm very worried that these practices will continue. I mean, it's, it's it's absolutely outrageous and against any you know international convention. Mm-hmm. And you know, I don't even know what question I want to ask or how to ask that question. But again, you. Um, you work in places where torture has been a reality, and you've seen the damage that it does to the people who are left. <laughs> um, and what I wonder what that what that adds to your reaction to this country with, where you live, um, even having an ambiguous relationship to to torture as it, as its own policy. Do you think you have other reactions aside from um, that of um, a, c- a citizen because of this work you've done in forensic anthropology? And maybe the answer is no. I'm just I'm pro. No, I'm sorry. I don't understand the question. Yeah. Sorry. I do, I I think I, I just wonder if there if because you have actually worked with torture with with the aftermath of torture in a way that most right. Americans haven't. Um, if, if you think there are things you just know and understand and sense because of that, that also conditions your reaction to American policy. Well, well of course, yeah, yeah. Um, definitely, you know, being with someone, with someone that has survived torture, which is often the people we interview uh, because are the survivors, the witnesses of the events that we are investigating. Mm-hmm. Um you know, it's it's people that have uh, that 
it's as if it's life before and after. The, it's, it's the humiliation, it's the, the physical part, of course, can often be, um, if you want, repaired or healed, but the psychological part is extremely um, um, difficult to, um, to, to heal. Um, there's people that often need help for many, many years, psychological help, uh, and that even if they can eventually go, go on with their lives, you know, work, have a family, and so on, um, it's, it, it's something that it's, it's devastating for their lives. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, I don't know, and that, um, and that does not even guarantee that someone is providing you with information, which is mm. <laughs> what you often see, that people tell you, you know, at one point I just told them whatever they wanted to hear because I just could not resist anymore being tortured. Yeah. Uh, so. And <clears throat> you, we, you were saying earlier that, that it's a different kind of grief or um, it's a different kind of pain for people when when their loved one has disappeared as opposed to a, a death which is in your presence um is have you also experienced on uh, loved ones of people when you have found because i understand that people are often with you when their loved ones bodies are being exhumed <clears throat> sorry is there a, what is the effect on them of knowing that their loved ones were tortured is that something you have experienced also well um First of all, in most cases that we work, we are dealing with skeletal remains. So um, uh, torture is something um, seldom seen on, on skeletal remains because it mostly affects soft tissue okay. um, that is no longer there in most of the cases where we work. Um, so sometimes we could see different levels of healing of fractures, for example, that maybe um, is... Uh, um, if the person had been um, uh, kept under, uh, under custody, uh, may be the result of, of beatings uh, prior to the death of the person. Mm -hmm. um, but in, in general, just the fact that, if, you know, seeing uh, bones broken, um, what we call perimortem fractures, fractures that occurred around the time of death um, that didn't allow the the bones to heal, and so the bone is basically broken. Um, and see associated evidence such as bullets. Uh, it's 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 uh, it's very difficult, um, uh, very very difficult uh, thing to watch for the families of victims. We we always ask them if they want to be there or not. Uh, what we think is we have to give them the option, and mm -hmm. then you know. Uh, which is something that often it's not given to them. And so it raised another wave of doubts about um, what happened, how the remains were found, and so on. And so we always them if you want to come, you know, you're more welcome, and we often bring them with us. And the same thing when we identify the remains, uh, we always tell them, do you want us to go to the morgue with us? And, um, and we show you the remains, and we explain you what we've seen on the remains and why we think this is your daughter or your son. And um, most of the time, they want that. They, it's, it, it's very painful, and they, they always say it's, you know, they cry and they react as if the person had died the day before. Hmm. It's, um, it's very, very painful. But they always say the same thing, that they want 
most of the time, that they do want to see this. They need to see this, they need to see the remains. And even if it's very painful, they want to know as much as we know. Mm. So we go, you know, we go with them. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm interested in what you, in your work as a, a way in which science is used as a tool for human rights. Um, and, um, I mean, forensic sciences, um, as I understand it, applies techniques from many disciplines, archaeology, anthropology, genetics, ballistics, osteology. Um, and I'm curious about uh, DNA DNA, and how, how we can now do DNA testing. Um, is there... Is there an upside to that, and is there also a downside to that in terms of yeah? Oh, you touch a subject that I love. <laughs> okay, yeah. So talk to me about that because you know, let's say uh, in our culture, I think DNA is seen as this magic bullet, right? That suddenly makes oh. all these great things possible. But I sense you have a more ambiguous, uh, ambivalent no, relationship. No, no, no. To it. I mean, okay. just last night we were talking about this. Um, we are involved in in, in a one very large um, genetic program right now. Um, 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 first of all, uh, genetic uh, um, applied to human identification on when we're dealing with bones. It's very different than when we're dealing with uh, corpse in the sense that okay. extracting DNA from bones is a much more complicated process, uh, much more expensive, much more time-consuming than doing it with um, blood, fluid, soft tissue in general. Yeah. And there's very fewer, much fewer laboratories that will actually do that kind of work and well and on, with bones. Um, um, we started using um, um, confirming identification through DNA since 1991, almost when it became available, uh, which was in, in the world at the, at the end of the 80s, beginning of the 90s. Um, and um, what we're seeing, I mean, it's it's an amazing tool. It's mm. absolutely, you know, it produced a revolution in our field. Right. It's fantastic in many, many ways. We, uh, dealing particularly on the human rights uh, field, most of our victims don't have dental records, medical records that we can compare right. with the remains that we have. And so often uh, we uh, reach only tentative identification using traditional anthropological techniques such as medical records, uh, odontological records, etc. Um, because there's very little information. And so um, sometimes because the population of victims were peasants and so they, they just didn't go to doctors or didn't, the doctors didn't keep records or something like that, sometimes because they were, like in Argentina, um, many of them very young and they just didn't have anything in particular, right. maybe a filling on a molar, which is so common and so much shared by so many people. They were from the same age group, you know. Uh, they were not really, they didn't have any old fractures, they didn't have anything in particular that could, you know, single them out from the rest. So the DNA, it's um, in many ways the complementary tool that really uh, can bring a tentative ID to a positive ID. Having said that, um, it's not magic. <laughs> there is a lot of problems. Um, uh, beginning with um, sometimes you cannot extract DNA from bones. Um, and um, it, it depends on a number of variables, some that we know, some that we still don't know, mm. of what inhibit uh, actually the extraction of DNA from bones. Sometimes it's because of the soil. Some types of soils may, be, may seem to be more difficult um, um, 
when, when bodies have been there to extract DNA. Uh, sometimes if, you know, some products have been applied to the remains, that can also be a problem. If the remains have been submitted to high temperatures, that can also degrade DNA. Mm. Um, and then there's uh, other cases in which that, that have not, don't enter into any of those categories, but that for some reason that we still don't know, uh, laboratories cannot extract enough DNA uh, to, or, or good DNA uh, to reach um, a usable profile, that, that genetic profile that we can compare with the ones from the relatives of victims. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the other problem that we have, it's on the other side. Sometimes we don't have direct relatives. Right. We, we don't, the parents are no longer alive. Uh, there's only one um, sibling or, um, you know, or an or a uncle or, or a cousin. And, and that, in many cases, it's not enough to reach a positive identification. It, so there's, there's, frankly, many different problems um, why um, you may not end up um, having identifications through DNA. Uh, it is still the way to go, but, um, uh, but uh, the way also to do it is it's, it's, uh, with, uh, within a multidisciplinary approach, uh, mixing the results coming from genetics, from anthropology, from the background, the investigation of each case, the well, records yeah. that you have. And I'm also thinking just of this the human process that you have, of, which is quite slow and painstaking. And I just wonder if the availability of DNA testing would create a desire or an idea that you could shortchange some of that and just get down to it, um, ident- make an identification and bypass some of the rest of that process. Uh, do you mean to submit samples before uh, to, for DNA faster than what we normally do? I just, I just mean that the way that you um, this process where you where you just start deconstructing not only who this is but what happened and how it happened. Mm. Oh no! But we're also now changing a lot the way in which we're working. Are you because of DNA? Absolutely, mm-hmm. yeah. Because mm-hmm. since, for example, we applied this massive program in Argentina where um, that we started a couple of years ago that when we're comparing for the first time, for example, on, on this first year, 600 uh, sample from 600 skeletons that we thought correspond to disappeared people, but we don't, don't know who they are, um, uh, to more than 5,000 blood samples of relatives of disappeared people and cross them hmm. so that to see what comes out of that. Um, we are uh, escaping, you know, all the historical investigation and so on. I mean, um, and that's how it's going to be. I think that now before we, because uh, DNA first was not available and then was available in such a, you know, for us at least, um, uh, in very few numbers a year that we could do uh, of DNA cases, we have to narrow down, we have to do a lot of historical investigation to narrow down one skeleton to two or three potential families I see. and then submit them to DNA. Mm-hmm. Uh, now because DNA after September 11 and after the war in the Balkans have, the genetic technology have, um, um, got a major upgrade. Um, now it's cheaper, faster, and massive comparisons are much easierly also being done. The softwares have improved. So now we are basically doing um, things all at the same time, kind of. Oh, um, uh, we do the historical investigation. We collect the antimodem data. That's something you always have to have because, you know, genetics can also make mistakes or false positives. Or, I mean, there's a number of, of things that you have to corroborate with the anthropological data. Yeah. But we, at the same time that we're analyzing skeletons, we are, if we can, if we have the financial resource, sending samples for DNA. I wonder, I'm, um, 
I'm wanting to hear maybe a story of a specific place, or and maybe this is an experience you've had recently, or maybe it was um, just one of those moments that seemed cathartic to you in your career. Um, you know, a site or a person or a, a family that you uh, worked on um, that helped you think about what this work is and why you do it and why it matters. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> That's a big question. Yeah. No, it's it's every time we have an identification, I I feel I feel an enormous relief. And even if the communicating this to a family, it is you know you're you know it's going to be very painful for them because it's the end of the hope of finding their relative alive. I I feel this. I always feel the same way. I feel like I'm looking forward to have the family in front of me and tell them because I feel that, well, this is, we're finally providing them with, with an answer, with something concrete. Um, and it's terrible that what we're telling them is that their loved one is dead. But if the loved one is dead, the best thing you could do is at least be able to find that information mm-hmm. and give them to them. Um, so um, every time now I've been working in Mexico for a number of years in the border in Ciudad Juarez, and every time we have to communicate results. Um, and that's where hundreds of young women have disappeared. Right. Over the last fifteen years. Mm-hmm. Right. And and you know families say, well, you know, finally, after all these years, we have some information. We this is very painful, but you know we're. Um, you know, at least know what happened. Um, and often it doesn't come the first day that we meet to tell them the, the results, but afterwards. And uh, it's, it's, always, it's always the same thing. It's the families of the victims who, uh, their words, their stories that keep you going. Um, and from time to time, you know, we get justice, not, not as often as we get identifications, but... Um, mm. And that's a very, also a very important moment. Um. In this um, article in the New York Times in 1987, I don't know if you remember this, but... Um, yes, I do, yeah. Yeah, and they, <laughs> there's a quote from you um, that all of you were in your 20s, and, and it says, and you all plan to move on to other work. <laughs> yeah. And you said, <laughs> and there's quoting you, we all have other ambitions, ideas more connected to life. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Because at the beginning, we frankly saw it as, okay, we're going to do this because we cannot say no. We should be consistent with what we believe. We cannot, you know, um, turn our backs to this. But then we'll do it for a few years, and then we'll go back to normal academic, you know, life. Mm-hmm. I Well, some members of the team from that original team did that. Um, I, I found you know, uh, an enormous passion on, on what we were doing. And even though at times I thought, well, shall I do something else? <laughs> mm. uh, this is too difficult or too painful or something like that. Um, uh, I could not think about anything that makes me uh, so passionate about it. Um, and I'm very grateful to Dr. Snow for coming to Argentina at that point. And, and frankly, it was like a, a, a something that changed changed my life. I mean, I think there's very few people that work on what they want or what they like, mm-hmm. and and for that I feel very privileged. 
it, it strikes me when I when I talk to you and I read about the work you do, it's you don't reverse the indignity that was done or the horror that was done, but in some ways, somehow what you're doing is a counterweight to it. Um, I mean, it, you're making death matter, which somehow makes life is it is a statement that life matters. Exactly. You <laughs> yeah, you, you said it perfectly. Yeah. It, it is so much the work for the living. That's what I also learned. I mm-hmm. just didn't uh, know at the beginning. I, I was also more, as people from outside this job will, will see it, I was also more impressed at the beginning by all the, the dead part of it. Uh, it took me a while to understand how this is so much connected with the people that are alive and and to and to bring the, you know, to dignify the, the death of uh, of the victims. We were talking at the beginning about you're not a religious person, but but you um, clearly there's a moral and ethical, a really strong moral and ethical framework to what you do, and yet, I mean, what you do also confronts you all the time with the terrible things human beings do to each other. How do you make sense of that, or how do you live with that? Oh, I, I don't think we change. We're gonna, you know, the human beings change much. I'm not very optimistic on that side. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess I uh, sometimes we say that we're uh, nihilist idealist. <laughs> you and your <laughs> colleagues. <laughs> it feels like a contradiction in terms, but uh, <laughs> uh, well, you know um, that um, um, I. I think men will always be the same. I don't think we're going to change. We've been doing these awful things to each other for, you know, millions of years. At the same time, I think that um, uh, we are improving uh, by working on human rights and in, you know, associated areas uh, on um, uh, on limiting as much as we can, you know, human suffering and punishing um uh the ones who who are um committing this mm-hmm. and at the same time i feel an urgency to do it in my life um like if you see an injustice what well, you 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 may feel like you have to act you can't just let it go and and at the same time you are aware that um you know for things to change, it's it's a very very long process. It's a lot of patience. There's a lot of frustration. Um, changes are not as big as you would like, um, but um, but in one way, you know, um, if you, I don't know, I, I I feel this is what I like to do, and this is what it makes sense to do. So I don't know. <laughs> well, I was reminded when I was reading about what you do of um, a conversation I had earlier this year with a um, psychologist who studies um, revenge and forgiveness in human life and in mm-hmm. human societies. And I think a point he made, that, and I wonder if you think about this too, is that I think that Americans often look at places where these kinds of human rights atrocities happen, uh, these mass killings like in Bosnia or El Salvador, Argentina, you know, all over. And they imagine that that couldn't happen here. But what he described is that the line between that really has, it's not about human beings in one place or another being somehow more moral. It's its about the rule of law. It's about the structure. Um, 
And, and Absolutely. Yeah, I, do you, do, is, that, is that a perspective that you also... Yeah, yeah, very much. I think that this, uh, unfortunately, this, the, these things happen when there's a system, when there's a structure that um, it's allowing this to happen, when it's, it's uh, even rewarding uh, this kind of behavior, mm-hmm. and that unfortunately in any population there will always be people that will uh, follow that, um, and other ones that will also try to fight against it, and uh, and that the same person in a different society um, may have never committed uh, such an atrocity, um, but with but that certain personalities, certain people within you know. Uh, a society uh, within a system that will allow this to happen, it, it, it will happen. When, when I was in, not only in Argentina, in my own country, but, uh, but also when I went to Bosnia and I saw, you know, town by town or in, in Croatia, uh, you know, the house of a, of, of a Serb in a Croatian mostly uh, town being bombed and the next house with flour and the other house bombed and the same thing on a Serbian mostly uh, town. I was like, how could it be that people that live together for 40 years, you know, um, all of a sudden, you know, um, right. burn the house of their neighbors and so on. And of course, it's, it's, it's a complex process. It's not always the same people. Uh, it, it's not only that they, they believe in peace and, you know, there's histories behind that. And, but, um, but basically, yes, I think that it could happen in any society. Hmm. A sobering thought. Um, you have a daughter, is that right? Right. <laughs> how old is and how old is she? Three. Three. Um, has did becoming a mother change your experience of the work you do? Yeah. How? Yeah, in in, in different ways. In one way, I, I don't I travel to you know some places that are too dangerous, or, right? Or that could be even dangerous for her in terms of diseases or things like that. Because she comes with, often with me, um, mm-hmm. but and I also um, I did understand before what it meant to lose um, a daughter or a son. But clearly, since my daughter is with me, um, sometimes I think it's something like this will happen to her. I, you know, I have no idea how could I live with that, mm-hmm. and that only. Um, uh, enlarge my admiration for the mothers of disappeared people uh, and fathers that, you know, um, keep their patient and keep their fight after years and years. I just don't know how, I mean, how will I react, frankly? Um, mm-hmm. um, I think it, it got, like, <laughs> deeper, the feeling of how terrible this is, Yeah. And she's not quite at the age where she's asking why about everything or... or she started two weeks ago. Did she? <laughs> I mean, do you think about how you're going to describe your work to her? Because um, it sounds a little trickier to me than the work a lot of us do during the day and t- telling our kids what that is. Yeah, well, the other day I was thinking, you know, if she may ask me, Mommy, why are you doing this? <laughs> I don't know. Um... I don't know. I mean, uh, my nephews for a long time would tell them I was dealing with dinosaurs and things like that. You know? <laughs> uh, and then uh, one of my sisters one day, when my, my nephews were like was like twelve or thirteen, uh, and, and and he said, "But you're not dealing with dinosaurs, really." 
And so I look at my sister and she was like, go ahead, tell her, tell mm. him what you do. Mm. So I, you know, I, I told him. And um, I don't know, he listened very quiet and then come to knock at my door, you know, late at night. I said, I want you to tell me more about it. And so, mm. <laughs> I don't know, and since then we have a quite uh, open conversation about that. Um, do they ask questions like, why would people do that to others? Yeah, people? yeah, sure. And there's a lot of things you don't have answers, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, but I think it's good that they they start thinking about it too. Mm-hmm. But do they do they do do you have a sense that they understand this kind of paradox we were talking about a minute ago that in fact you're dealing with death, but but it's a way of honoring life. I think that because of what happened in Argentina, at least um, I don't know if my daughter will understand it, but at least uh, my my nephews that that are there. Uh, they're they're very aware of what happened. Of the disappeared and all of that. the disappearance of people mm-hmm. and and how terrible that was and the trials and this and that and it's been you know an ongoing topic in 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 my family not because of my work but mostly because of my mother being a journalist and you know always uh, and very concerned about human rights. Um, but uh, and so um, I think that they do. I think they see the difference. They they you know. They're young, but they've seen the mothers of Plaza de Mayo, the grandmothers of Plaza de Mayo, mm-hmm. uh, talking and demonstrating, and so they have a you know very. They, they didn't live through that period, but they it, it's something close to them. It's not something that is you know unthinkable. Um, now, my daughter, I don't know. <laughs> mm-hmm. Let's see. Are there? I wonder how you. Um... Are there things you wish you could, I don't know, explain to people here or shake people about, I mean, in in the United States, either in terms of thinking about the seriousness of what happens in other parts of the world and perhaps American complicity in that, or even just about being cognizant of what we have um, here? Yeah, my. Uh, um, I guess I'm going to go back to something we discussed before. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have to say, also, I became American, so I'm also an American okay. citizen, and I'm, I'm I'm very happy with that as well. I mean, I there's many things that I learned and that I you know that are fantastic from from this country. Um, but uh, again, I think uh, it's very important to. Um, uh, be aware and keep pressure on this new administration on the issue of tortured, on the issue of extraordinary rendition, um, on how prisoners are um, being detained, kept. That that they that all the you know Geneva Conventions, all the the same rights that we will ask to anybody to have. I mean, if 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 uh, one of our uh, loved ones will be detained you know, wrongly or not, what we want is a fair trial. Mm-hmm. We want a lawyer, we want a fair trial, and deal with whatever comes out of that. But the rights of an individual should never be taken away. And I think um, there is a need to uh, for Americans to be more involved on what's going on uh, in relationship with counterterrorism policies in this country. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be quiet for a minute and ask if my producers behind the glass have any questions, and then we'll just finish up. So I'm going to be quiet for a moment while I listen to them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Okay. Okay. Um, have, have you ever have you had experiences that were that were negative, that were painful, where where people asked you to leave and you really felt that there wasn't closure for you or for them? Yeah. Yeah. Um, one time was in uh, in uh, Croatia in 1992. There was a ceasefire there for six months more or less, and uh, so we went to work with Dr. Snow, and. Uh, we were starting to work on um, on a mass grave in 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 Opchara, and um, they uh, uh, the uh, at the time that was under the um, um, uh, jurisdiction of the Serbs, and they um, uh, after a few days they said we, you have to leave, you, you you know you're not allowed to start this digging, mm. and um, um, you have to go now, mm. so we have to pick up everything very quickly and leave. Um, that was, that was very frustrated, uh, frustrating. Um, um, then, um, there are cases in which we don't find anything. Like, uh, we don't find the graves. We don't find, mm. find the bodies, for example, which is the other part. I mean, DNA had made an enormous, um, progress on the human, on the, on the side of identification. But the other big problem that we have is finding graves. Um, we often don't find them, and um, and that's that's you know very painful for right. for the families and and so on. Um, sometimes, like uh, in some countries, like in Zimbabwe, we started working, and then the situation deteriorated so badly that yeah. um, you know we just have to stop working there um, until things get better. Um, and then sometimes. Um, there are divisions within a family um, towards what to do. Right. Uh, on, on exhuming a grave, for example, that have relatives from two different families. One family wants the remains to be exhumed and so on, and the other one does not. The other one does not. And, uh, um, and we caught in the middle, and we basically, you know, as long as they are not, they don't reach an agreement, um, we don't intervene because mm -hmm. we don't, mm -hmm. you know, we don't feel we can decide that. Right. Um. You've said that you stay in touch with the, some of the people you work with across the years. Is that right? Families? Um, some, yes. In some cases, yes. And in some cases, no. That's, that's something um, difficult in a way because at one point you're very close uh, with them. 
and you share these very intimate moments of you know when you're telling them what you know what what you find out and and uh, you're giving them back the remains and we often go to the reburial ceremonies mm. uh, and then most of the time we're no longer in touch um, unless we go back to the country or it's it's Argentina it's our own country um, we often don't go don't don't see each other again and I think um, um, uh, it's it's On both sides, sometimes it's a bit difficult to keep on seeing each other because it's as if we can't talk about anything else sometimes, mm-hmm. somehow right, right. when we see each other. And um, and it's difficult. Um, at the same time, of course, you know, you, uh, you know there, there's, a, there's a lot of affection going on. And, and at the same time, for you as a forensic person, it's this... Um, sometimes very difficult um uh you know to share all those moments it's it's uh, emotionally sometimes um quite overwhelming right uh, and then you need to withdraw a bit um and sometimes you just don't want to have that overwhelming thing all the time uh, <laughs> because it's very hard too i mean it's 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 true you know it's mm-hmm. both it's Both things, I think, are going on. You, you, you said, and I, I understand that the word healing is easy to say, and in fact, it's a, a hard thing in life to achieve in the face of this kind of devastation that you work with in people's lives. Um, I wonder how your imagination about something like healing or reconciliation, um, though, has been shaped by. What you've been involved with, people you've seen live through and beyond these experiences. I mean, does does have you seen healing happen? Um, and if so, what makes that possible for people beyond something like this? Recovering the remains of their loved ones, I have to say, this is something very often very clearly seen because people say it also. Mm-hmm. You know, they mm-hmm. will come back, you will see them few months later or a year later and they will say directly you know um, I feel so different I feel so much better I feel this relief this calm inside um, then the trials um, also um, produce a feeling of relief you know of where they feel that there's some justice has happened exactly mm-hmm. uh, um, truth commissions as well I mean these are I think I see all these steps as Of truth and justice as as reparation steps that do produce a specific i think um, um, relief uh, mm-hmm. for families of victims again it doesn't mean that for everybody and it doesn't mean that it's a final you know uh, that then you're fine and nothing happened or yeah. or you're back to how you were before or your healing is done because um, you know in the end your daughter or your son it's not with you You know, it's yeah. dead, and so. Um, but 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 I think all those steps help a lot to to try to uh, reconcile w- with what happened and um, and and go on with your life. Mm-hmm. And I have to ask, I mean, what what sustains you, and what helps heal you from from these things you experience that are so hard. Well, I, I like many parts of my work. I mean, I, I, 
as I said, the most important thing is it's the most rewarding thing is feeling that you're doing something concrete for, you know, for a family, for a specific uh, group of people. That's a very, you know, for me, a very strong thing that as an anthropologist, it's not always um, what you can achieve. Right. As an anthropologist, sometimes, you, you know, you study things that that may involve the anthropological community, but uh, that sometimes you may feel are not as concrete or, I mean, and, and I personally... Uh, need that but also I like science a lot right. and I like putting together uh, like the pieces of the puzzle of each case that we're trying to that we're analyzing um, uh, and I get very involved into that I, I, I you know when we're doing new this new genetic project for example that I think it's you know the, the idea of providing cutting edge um, you know science to the often the most uh, disenfranchised communities, I found it, you know, extremely appealing. And uh, um, and I get very, I don't know, very enthusiastic about putting together the project, trying to find the funds, uh, you know, um, getting all the different pieces together. Um, I, I don't know, I just like a lot what we do. <laughs> <laughs> There's that amazing thing of science as a tool for human rights again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 Well, um, is there anything anything you'd want to say um, that I haven't asked you about? We've covered a lot of ground. I think we did, yeah. Okay. Well, I, I really appreciate you making the time for this. Um, we'll let you know what's happening with this. I, I don't know who you've been talking to. Shiraz, I believe? Uh, no, um, Rob. Rob, okay. And um, uh, thank you so much. And we'll, we'll, if we may have some follow-up questions or just by email or something, and we'll, we'll okay, contact you. Okay, thank you. Okay, thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.